Um, Parshas Boy. Shmais Fair Boy. Where are we? It's actually chapter 10. We're starting at t- chapter 10. That's right, that when the, cha- when the Parsha starts at the beginning of a chapter, it always feels like a fluke. <laughs> Chapter one, chapter one. And, right, and, that, and then it, it got messed up after that. Okay, so we're tra- starting chapter 10, verse 1. Okay. And uh, the name of Parsha is Bo, which means to come. So uh, one of the things that my son taught me when he was very little was that his Rebbe in, I think it, like, it was after school classes that he was taking, said that Bo is numerical value of? Three. Three. And how many makos do we have in this parsha? Three. Three. So that was a cute little uh, thing that he learned. Um, if if last week parsha's va'era was um, lead up to redemption, it was the beginning of the makos. It was the beginning of the plagues. It was the the sort of shemos was the beginning. Like was like really exile situation. Va'era was like preamble to redemption. And in Parsha's bow, we are actually going to leave Egypt. We're going to actually leave Egypt. So this is actually, actually the, the, the Geula Parsha. This is totally what's going on over here. Um, and next week, we're going to talk about what happens when we left Egypt. Because next week, we're going to have the Red Sea, or Sea of Reeds, more accurately translated. Um, and all that stuff is going to happen next week. But this week is actually going to be everything that has to do with the actual redemption, which is kind of exciting. Somebody who has a Hayenu and could read today's Hayom Yom, go, Aviv. Today's Hayom Yom, it's, because we know that the Hayom Yom is, the, the, today is actually the first day of Bo in the Hayom Yom. So what, what do we learn for today? So that's this week. So this week, when we spoke with, last week, I sent you the article on the the, the seven and the, the seven and the three. I don't know if anybody read it, but this week we are dealing with the three intellectual, the cleansing or the rectification of the three uh, intellectual characteristics that we have, and that's you know because there's always a question. Well, why do you have three plagues here? Why don't you just put all the plagues in one and have all the actual Exodus stuff in the other? Like, what's the thing? And I think that when you learn it through Hasidus, it really um, explains it quite nicely. Okay, so here we are. So now we're, start, we're ta- starting to talk about Bo. What does Bo mean? Um. Bo means to come, right? And, um, and Hashem says to Moshe, come to Paro because I've hardened his heart. And we're not... What is that noise? Huh? Okay. We'll wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, yeah. Okay. Um, so, okay. So it's interesting. It's interesting um, that um, the Torah doesn't tell us what he's going to do. He just says, Boel Paro, because I hardened his heart. Come to Paro. 
do something, say something, warn him, any of that situation, like nothing. Right? It just doesn't say anything. It says, go to, you know, come to Paro. And, um, and Hasidus talks about a lot that come is come with. Not just, it's not, the difference between go and come is to come with. And the Zohar says that Paro, it, it describes Paro as a snake, a, a massive serpent, and Moshe is afraid to go into that space and to confront Pharaoh. That's why a lot of the, the confrontations with Pharaoh have been at the, at the water, where he's not, in, there's a place of like going into his palace and his, the essence of his power, so to speak, that's very, very frightening to Moshe on some level. And Hashem says to him, Yala, we're gonna do this together. Hashem probably didn't say Yala, I'm just saying. But um, we're gonna do this together. And, um, and when we go into that space, we will be able to sort of transform that essence so that it's no longer an issue. Because as long as Pharaoh, as long as Pharaoh is pharaohing, I don't know, I don't know, like, right? He, he's, then, then, what? Whatever he's doing, his, his place, the, 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 the Navi describes Paro's um, sense of self, his, uh, his aggrandized sense of self, where he says, I am the river and I've created myself. So that sense of it's all me, it's not even about how corrupt and cruel Egypt is. Like that's, that's almost a follow through to his attitude of like, it's all about me. It's me, it's me, it's me, I did it, it's all about me. And in a way, Hasidus talks about the idea that every time we do anything wrong against Hashem, it's an expression of our self and our, sometimes our selfishness, and, but definitely part of our self. And so the, one of the things that we need to do is that we need to sort of look at that place of ego and say, can I connect Pharaoh as snake as ultimate ego is devoid of Hashem, it's me, it's me, it's me, what do I want, what do I need, what do I, but if Moshe can go in and say, at the end of the day, all ego only exists because Hashem has ego, because Hashem is a self, and so our manifestation of ego is really, on some weird way, a manifestation of godliness, unless we've totally separated it in our heads and we can't even connect it anymore. So we have bought into our story that we are the most important serpent in the river, which was Pharaoh. And when Moshe is gonna, Hashem says, let's go into Pharaoh, let's go into that essence and kind of show him that it's not all about him, that at the end of the day, we have ego, we're supposed to use it for Hashem, which is much harder than using either a using ego for ourselves or pretending that we don't have an ego and it, it's all the same, right? But to be able to say, how can I take my ego and transform it to a vessel for Hashem? That's what Hashem is essentially telling Moshe. When we can look at the Pharaoh, identify his ego and show him that it's coming from Hashem, even though he is totally mis appropriated, miss all those words. You know, he's totally messed it up. He's, his, 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 his manifestation of it is totally wrong, but its essence is someplace coming from a godly place, then, then we can break it. And then we can release that, and then we can get out of Egypt. And the truth is that that's when we're talking about a ge'ula parsha, a personal ge'ula parsha. That's where the Hayyam started. It's a personal ge'ula parsha. The first thing that I think we have to for ourselves be brave enough to look at is to say 
what's my relationship with my ego? And when we're too afraid to look, like Moshe was too afraid, we have to understand that it's Parsha's bow. Hashem will always help us. Hashem will, he says, come with me. We will go together. We will look at your, the things that you want to pretend don't exist, the parts of ourselves that we're like, oh no, I don't really have any kind of self-interest in the situation. It's, I'm totally altruistic. Maybe we are, maybe we're not, but like the place of, of real liberation is being honest with ourselves about, it talked about in the Yom Yom, about how do we fix our midos, how do we fix our, fix our character traits, and I think the first place is for us to look at ourselves and be honest, but not be afraid, because it's just us and our, and our big ego that's like, it's a little overwhelming, but if Hashem's like, I'll go with you and I'll, we'll do it together, then that becomes something that we could sort of step into that space. So that's my first bracha to all of us, that we should not be afraid. Okay? And, um, and then we're going to have, so the next plague that they're going to, that's going to, he's then going to come and he's going to warn the people, he's going to warn Pharaoh about this locust coming in. One big Rashi bring, points out that it's going to be like a single breed of locust. Uh, that's going to come in, it's going to eat whatever isn't left. And there's a place where Paro is being so, so, so stubborn, right? He's so stubborn. And he, like, basically chases Moshe and Aaron out. And then in verse 7, the servants of Pharaoh say to him, like, dude, let him go. <laughs> what are you doing to us? We're all going to die. Like, what's your problem? I totally paraphrased them, but that's probably what they said. So Moshe and Aaron are brought back. They're brought back. And then Pharaoh starts to negotiate. Okay, who needs to go? Who's going? And what does Moshe add? And I, I was looking for this last week's, last week's Parsha, but it's actually in this week's Parsha. And Moshe answers, in verse 10, 9. with our elders as it Go. Keep going. Um, with our sons, our daughters, our flock, our cattle. Um, it's a vessel for Hashem. Um, I, I said to the, I said to the, I said this to you last week. I must have heard this easily a hundred, if not more, times from the Rebbe when he spoke about the future redemption. Who is going and who is part of it? We're going with our young and with our old. We're going with our sons and our daughters because it's a it's a festival for Hashem. And one of the things that Pharaoh doesn't understand, and we're going to see this a little bit later when we talk about the carbon Pesach. Um, because this week, this week we get introduced to the the pace of the of sacrifice is that in Judaism there isn't a class of people that need to do the stuff and everybody else gets a free pass. Like it's not like we all just have to show up to show once a week or wherever and like the rest of our lives we do our own thing. Moshe's telling Paro very very clearly this is this is a full family experience like. You say only, like, he's, he's like, okay. Para's like, okay, who needs to go and do the service? You know, we'll issue a three-day pass for, you know, visas for those people to go out and come back. I was like, no, no, you didn't get it. You don't, you don't get it. It's like an everybody situation. We all have a relationship with Hashem. We all have to develop a relationship with Hashem. And when Pharaoh does not agree to that, and we know that he's not going to because Hashem has hardened his heart. Hashem's not going to let him go. Hashem's not going to let them go at this point. Um... And he, and he, and, and so Par is again going to backtrack, and he says, um, and he, he, he sort of like, um, he doesn't like curse them, but he tells them, Par says to them that, that, um, I, you know, I see like there's this bad, there's bad facing you, and, um, and Rashi points out that Raz is a, 
is a one of the the Egyptian gods. There's a thing is of what uh, water. Why yeah, there's huh? Why is the sun? The sun. The pharaoh who is crying is like Ra. Right. So he says Ra. The says Ro ki Ra neged penechem. So Rashi says that he there's a star who's that's called Ra. And Paro says to them, like, there, I see bad in your future. Like, there's bad stuff going on there. There's a star following you that isn't, that isn't uh, favorable. I think it's the air conditioning that's on, actually, and that's why it's getting colder. Um, thank you. And, um, and, um, and later on, when Hashem wants to, when Hashem wants to destroy the, when Hashem wants to destroy the Jewish people, when they sin with the golden calf, um, Moshe says, why should the Egyptians say that he took us out for evil? And he's referencing this point that Paro talks about. I was right. He's referencing this point that Paro was talking about, about this, this somehow this bad star that's following you. And when Hashem, so when Moshe's going to actually plead for the, for, the, for the Jewish people, it's going to be like, don't let the Egyptians be right. So that's going to be like a foreshadowing for later on over there. Um, and... He's like, you, the men want to go, Sababa, everybody else were not happening, and they basically get chased out again. And then we have the plague of, of locusts that comes, and it comes like on a wind, and it blows it. And then later on, when it's going to be time to take it out, it's going to blow it in the other direction. And Rashi points out that even the locusts that they pickled go flying out of their jars, and they don't keep them anymore. The don't, ju- don't, don't yuck my yum. <laughs> no, no, the Egypt, a lot of the Egyptians. The, by the way, by the way, there are. I was going to say brands of locusts, but it's not brands. There's there are species of locusts that are in fact kosher, locusts and like locusts. It's a kind of bugs. Yeah, they're like, and there's all different. Kind, did I tell you about this? When we first moved to Israel, like within the first under five years that we were here, there was a massive convention at the at the convention center, and they had all the different kinds of stuff that don't have kosher symbols, but they have. Misora, um, they have a tradition. So they had gathered from every single Jewish community what was their tradition of foods that they ate, mm. and they wanted to preserve it. So and they had a whole like a kosher food fest with lots of things that your standard Ashkenazi has never seen. <laughs> they were grasshopper, all different kinds of things. So there's like all different kinds of stuff that you there's no there's no real um, there are no signs on them or they're they're you have to really know them very well. This is four feet, six feet. It rubs your feet this way, or whatever. So, I, I I don't know. I don't know if if I I know I didn't go, but I don't know if I would have gone. Would I have eaten it? Because I think I would have been too nervous. But yeah. So they they pickle the locust as well. Um, and the next thing that we're gonna have, the next thing we're gonna have in verse twenty one is the plague of darkness, which comes with no warning. Um, and it talks about it being, there's a lot, a lot of conversation in the commentaries about what kind of darkness we're talking about. It, it seems that it's somehow very tangible, right? The first three days they can't see anything, sorry. Um, they can't see, they can't see one another. And the last three days uh, they can't move. They can't move. They're immobilized. Um, and the, the seventh day, because we know each of the plagues was seven days, so the seventh day was reserved for when they crossed the sea. So when the Jews are crossing the sea and Hashem makes darkness for the Egyptians so they shouldn't see, that's the commentators talk about that's the seventh day of the plague of darkness. Um, 
uh, and they have this thing. Now, I want to stop on the darkness for a second. So, the Chidush Arim, who's one of the Geir Rebbe's, he talks about what is the ultimate darkness. And he says from the Pasuk, if you look at verse 23, ish es achiv, a person could not see their brother. The Chidush Arim says, when you cannot see the pain of another, when you cannot see what's going on in somebody else's life, that is ultimate darkness. And the, the sages talk a lot about was it actual darkness? Was it some kind of medical condition? Was it some this? What was it exactly? And I think like it's such an apt metaphor for us because, because um, you know, there's, there's different versions of darkness. And, and one of the things that it tells us over here, which I want to continue a second, is uh, that the Jewish people had light. Um, meaning they were not, A, they were not affected by the darkness. And Rashi even brings a really weird, anybody see the Rashi over there? It was like uh, Mondays, Mondays, so much of anybody was following along. Rashi brings a really, I don't want to judge it, but what does Rashi say over there? He says that, that it, it seems like the Jews had some kind of, um, maybe some kind of source of, what? Yes, yes. Huh? Yes. So he says, first of all, they had some source of light that they were able to have light even if they were in an Egyptian's house. And Rashi says that the Jews went into the Egyptian houses and they said, they didn't, say, they didn't take anything, they, they looked around. We just turned it off. It's, it's, it's putting you sleep schmuck. Now it's not cold, I promise you. It's not cold. It's really hot and it's, it was really noisy. Thank you. Um, 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 so the Jews looked around. They didn't touch anything, but they looked around. And, and, and they went and they saw what was going on. And one of the Mepharshim talks about that, and we, we know enough of like science fiction, like you actually picture this, right? That the Jews had a light source that was somehow lighting up in the Egyptian houses so they would know where to look. Almost like, you know, like there's like some kind of... I don't know if a projector or some kind, like, I mean, you could think of, yeah, whatever, some kind of, an orb or something, they would go into the Egyptian houses and they were almost following a light that was saying, look here, look there, like they're going to go look for everything. And they went to see what kind of valuables the Egyptians had, they didn't touch it. And later on in a couple of psukim or another parak, I don't remember exactly where it is, it's like Hamishi, where, it's actually in Shishi, I think it's in Shishi, that when they are told to go ask to go borrow vessels from their Egyptian neighbors, they and they go to the Egyptians. The Egyptians say, "We don't have anything," and they're like, "Actually, the you do." No, not touching. Saying that Rashi says they didn't touch it, but they said, "Oh, we saw it in this place, and we saw it in that place, and we saw it in that place." So it wasn't they were going in and taking it, but they were like, uh, "Yeah, you actually do." But, but later on, though, there's the whole thing where Hashem tells them to leave it, right? No, they take it to take it. Hashem says to go ask from your neighbors, ask clay, go borrow silver and gold vessels, borrow, euphemistically speaking, over there. Um, but I thought there's a thing later on, like after they cross the sea. No, so that's, first of all, that's next week's parasha. We're going to pick oh, it up next okay. week, and it's not about the stuff that they get out of Egypt. Okay. There's a whole conversation about what did they gather at the sea, and at what point is it too much, and is it enough, and that's a different conversation. Okay. Um, so here they have this darkness, and really, I think, you know, when you read in the Chumash that they had a darkness that they couldn't move from, 
it seems weird. You, you, I remember as a kid pic- picturing them sitting in like jello, like some kind of not being able to move. But we all know today that there is a possibility of having darkness, personal darkness that immobilizes us. And, and it's not a good place to be. It's not a good, it's not, it's not that you are physically, you know, stuck like jello to your, you know, to your chair. But when we are sometimes in a place of real darkness, um, depression or other different things that will just sort of not allow us to move. So, um, it's something that we could, we could, we kind of hear that. We understand that place of a darkness that doesn't let us move. And one of the things that the Pasuk tells us that the Jewish people always had light. We always have a way. We, and it's true of all people, but I'm talking to everybody here now, that there, we have to always be able to grasp for the light. Meaning the Egyptians did not have access to the light in, this, in the context of the plague because that was the definition of the plague, that they did not have the light. Um, and I want to give us a bracha, really, that sometimes when we are in a place of, of darkness, that we should remember that we do have the light and we do have access to the light. We just have to be able to reach for the light. And perhaps, if I could sort of borrow the, the Torah of the Chidush Arim, one of the ways that we will get our light is when we can see the other, when we can see the pain or the need of another, and that's one way that we can sort of get our light back. Um, so that's, that's the next plague that we have over here. Okay. And then we, uh, then we have another conversation with Paro and Moshe. And he's like, okay, go, but just don't take any cattle. And, he, and Moshe's like, not only are we going to take our own cattle, we're going to take your cattle also because we have no idea what we're doing and we don't know what we're, what's going to be needed. And we're going to really like, yeah. And then Paro says, I'm not going to see you again. And Moshe's like, correct, you're not going to see me again. And later on, um, uh, um, we Hashem right here. We have Hashem is going to tell Moshe that there's one more plague, um, but he, there's a pause here. Okay, Hashem says there could be one more plague, and and, the, and Rashi says that Hashem actually gave the instruction. No, I guess I guess the information of the plague while Moshe was still in the palace. So we have a pause. Hashem's like, I'm going to bring one more plague. Time out. He gives him this beginning introduction of, uh, of going to borrow from the neighbors. And then it's going to go back to, then, then we're going to have Moshe going back and talking about this at, about at midnight. Hashem's gonna, we're going to talk about it in a second. But Rashi says, like, this is the only time that Hashem actually spoke to Moshe, not only within the city limits, but even within the palace. Like, there was this whole, there was like this back and forth going on between Moshe and Pharaoh and go and I don't want to see you again. I'm never going to see you again. So there was, the, he got an instruction for Paro while he was still in the palace. So he was able to give it to him and he doesn't see him again. He's not going to see him again. Um, and I wonder, and I haven't seen this, so take this, or, take this or leave this. I wonder, based on how we started, Boel Paro of Moshe coming in and sort of breaking the essence of the power, the power of Paro, does that now make the palace someplace that Hashem can be revealed in. I haven't seen it, but it's just my own sort of stringing the pieces together. Like, Hashem never appeared, even in Egypt, Moshe always had to, I mean, not in Egypt, like in the main city, he had to always go out of the city to, for, to talk to Hashem, to Dom, to Hashem. He never did it in the city. He always did it out of the city. And all of a sudden, now we have Hashem talking to Moshe in the palace, and 
You see my, you see my logic? I haven't seen it, but it seems logical to me. Okay. Um, so the, the pause in this one more plague, and then I'm going to knock you all, you know, you're all going to chase them out is, um, to speak to the to the people and they should ask from their neighbors. It actually doesn't say their neighbors. Anybody see what it says in chapter 11, verse two. Okay, but it, okay. So, what is a friend? What? Sorry, what does the Hebrew say? Uh, oh, achim. Or nope. Your son. Re'ehu. If you take a look, chapter two. Sorry, chapter eleven, verse two. Dabrina, but Moshe speak to the people, speak in their ears, meaning speak to them. Vishalu, and they should borrow ish me esre'ehu. One person from their friend. Remember, we have to kamocha. Mm. Should love your fellow, your friend as yourself, and a and a woman from her her female friend Clay Kesev and Clay um, and and the the Vilna Gon asks like, friend, Egyptians weren't their friends, they weren't their peers, they weren't their equals, they were. What do you mean, asked from their friends? And so the so the Vilna Gon actually says that the instruction that they were being given was to speak to their Jewish brothers and sisters and say how can I help you is there something that you can help me with that I can help you with and in the merit of them being having that obviously stroll the Vilna Gon says that's what actually helps them get out you know helps them get out of get out of Mitzrayim the place of reaching out to their friend and saying what can I do to help you or how can you help me in that place of 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 community and relationship but the Pasuk actually says they should go to their neighbors they go to their I don't know, I guess after, after a year of having no plagues, you start to like chat up the people next door. I, I don't know exactly what it means because um, it definitely has a very friendly connotation and to ask them for the, the, the gold and the silver. And Hashem, and Moshe says that Hashem will give a grace um, on the eyes of the, in the eyes of the, Jewish, of the Egyptians. And Moshe was also very, you know, honored and everything over there. We, uh, and, and that's kind of a, a thing. And the Mofarshim all ask, what, what, what's this stuff? What are they getting stuff out of Egypt? You know, what, what's going on with that? And Rash, Rashi over here, Rashi over here says, when it says Dabar no, first of all, we know no is like, please, please speak to them and could they please borrow stuff and leave with it? And Rashi says that he doesn't want any complaints from Avraham, from Avraham Avinu. That Avram, I, Hashem says, I promised Avraham that your children are going to be strangers in a strange land for 400 years, and they're going to be, you know, subservient, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, the Inuits, and they're going to torture them there, but but after it's going to leave with great wealth. So he's like, I don't want Avram to come and say, oh, the torture part they got, but the wealth they didn't get. And it doesn't make sense on any level to me, unless you start putting Hasidus into the situation, because like, let us out earlier and skip the stuff. You know, what's the big deal? It's more gold, more silver, beautiful silk, uh, you know, linen clothing. Like, let us out earlier. Let's stop this whole situation and let's leave earlier. But what does Hasidus explain? Hasidus explains that what is ever, and we know this because we've had, we've had this conversation in many different areas over, over, the, over time, is that there, is, there are sparks of holiness in stuff. Okay, and whenever we interact with, with anything in the world, we, are, we have the ability to elevate the sparks of holiness that are in that stuff. Okay, um, 
And so when the Jews go and they are borrowing gold and silver, and we know in Hasidus, gold and silver are love of Hashem and fear of Hashem, and they're going to go take all of the containers, here's my extrapolation, taking containers for love and fear of Hashem. They are also actually taking physical stuff. The Medrash talks about the idea that the Jews left Egypt, I think the, they had a minimum of six donkeys laden with stuff, each person. I would, I would imagine each family, not each person, because that would be whatever, but like, there, there was a lot of stuff, physical stuff that they took with them, and yet it isn't, it isn't only about the actual physical stuff, because that would sort of be, we went to Egypt for 400 years, or actually 210 years, for like some platters. It seems weird. <laughs> Right? Like, skip the whole shebang. Like, let's do this differently, right? What are we doing this for? But then we, but then we actually have to ask ourselves, like, if Egypt is the paradigm for exile, so then we have to ask ourselves, well, then why do we ever go to exile? Why do we ever, you know, why are we ever in, you know, not in a perfect situation? So the prophet talks about we're exiled because of our sins, blah, 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 right? Well, so Hasidah says, like, well, if we're being in exile because of our sins, like, shouldn't... Did, oh, I was going to say, did anybody here pay your mortgage? I realized that was a stupid question. <laughs> right? If you have to pay, if you're doing payback for your sins, like, there's a certain point where it has to start getting easier. Like, you paid off the... the if anybody knows how the principle of mortgage works, like, if you take a mortgage from a bank, you borrow X amount of money, you have to return probably that and a half when you're lucky. Um, you know, you're, gonna, you're returning much more money. And the interesting... Random fact that I learned when I became a homeowner, homeowner is that the first money that you pay off is not the carrot, it's not the principal, it's the loan part of it. It's like the extra money. So you would think as you get towards the end of exile, things should get easier, they should get lesser. Like you paid, so we, we've been in exile for now for over 2,000 years. It hasn't gotten better. It's not like, oh yeah, we could really feel from the external factors that we are at the end of this exile, right? Because if we were paying back sins, like, dude, what could we have done that was so terrible that 2,000 years later, it's not lessening up at all? I mean, yes. It, yes, I don't want to uh, be ungrateful. You know, one of Moshe's biggest qualities about it, he, he was always being grateful for the river and the sand and the people and all this kind of stuff, right? I don't want to be ungrateful. And we, we are living in really, really Bar Hashem historically. We're living in great, you know, great situation. Um, maybe not in Ukraine, but, you know, but like really we're living in a really, thank God. And yet, and yet, you know, it isn't, it, it, there are certain things that you would think that's still happening today. Like that seems... 200 years ago, that was like a normal story. You know, blood libels. Don't, blood libels don't happen today. Uh, they kind of do. Depends where you're looking and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So Hasidus explains that the reason, and he also quoting from one of the Nevi'im, that the Jews went into exile to get converts. That we spent our time wherever we went. We're talking about, first of all, physical people who joined the Jewish people. So that's one of the reasons, like, you would never be attracted to something that you never, ever met. So one of the reasons that the Jews have been dispersed is to bring the word of God to, and bring other people you know, into, into, into that. But also, Hasidus explains that wherever we go, there are sparks of holiness that we have to collect and we have to bring them back to, to Hashem. And that's really why we're in exile. We're in exile because we encounter wherever we are. And we never, you know, one of the things Rebbe spoke about a lot was that you're never, 
randomly someplace. You, you're always, you might think it's random, but there's always going to be a reason for you going there and doing there and, be, and doing something there. You know, there's Balshemto stories about like they went to, they took the wagon, Balshemto stories, they always take horses and wagons, they travel for long, the driver falls asleep, they get lost, whatever, and they stop someplace and they make a bracha on water and then they go home. And, and the students are always like, what was that? And, and the Baal Shem says, that space in the world was waiting since creation, you know, for somebody to come and make a bracha with Kavana there. You're like, done. We can, we can leave. Like, we, we hear these kind of stories all the time, you know. I, you met uh, Yehudas' mother, so Yehudas' grandmother told a story that they were once coming back from a convention in the Midwest, and there was a snowstorm, and the planes were grounded. So they called the office in San Sunday, they spoke to everyone, and they're like, we're stuck in the airport, you know, and he's, and, and the message they got back, her, mom? her grandmother, that was with her grandmother. No, what? Yeah. Oh. So, and, he, and the answer is you're never stuck. Why are you there? If you're there, you're not just there for nothing. Go find what you're supposed to, why are you stuck in the airport for that amount of time? Go find it. And all the women who were just coming to this convention started going around and finding Jewish people to give candles to and blah, blah, blah. And like she was, I heard the story from her recently again, and she was saying that there are still people that they're in contact with, like, 25 years after the whole event happened that, you know, that are still connected and still putting on, you know, still doing, uh, still doing, um, still lighting candles. I just heard the funniest thing. I, I think it's true. It sounded like it was true. The random a clip that I got. So this rabbi is telling a story that he was someplace and there was like a big commotion and what's going on and they're like, oh, that woman's hysterical. So he goes over to speak to this woman, and he's like, what's this? So she says, like, I was going, I, it's in, it was in Israel, I was on the bus, and I had to get up a certain stop, and I had to get my, and I want to go shopping, and I, and I, um, and when I went under, you know how you put your stuff under the bus? Mm-hmm. And like intercity buses, intercity buses? So she went to get her bag, but her bag somehow pushed more oh, deeply in. <laughs> what? Oh, you heard this? More deeply in, and she ended up getting her bag. The driver closes the oh. thing and drives off. Oh. And she's freaking out because it's dark, and she's, like, swinging around with all the luggage. And all of a sudden, she hears another voice. <laughs> and there's a guy who's like, what are you doing here? And she's like, what are you doing here? I got stuck here. He's like, get out. It's Yichud. We're not allowed to meet the other. She's like, are you crazy? <laughs> like, that's your biggest issue? Like, I'm... And they keep like, and he's like, I can't go, 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 whatever. Anyway, so then finally at the next stop, the bus opens up and they both come out and that's where this rabbi comes into the conversation and he's like, he's like, he's telling her, you know, so she, she tells his side of the story. She's like, and he's like, where's the guy? And she's like, is that crazy person over there? So she goes, he goes over to the crazy person over there and he's like, are you crazy? <laughs> you have an hysterical person there. Like, why, why would you help her somehow? He's like, but it was Yichud, it was Yichud. And he's like, it wasn't Yichud. It was your first date. Give me your information. Give me your information. And he goes over to the girl and he's like, give me your information. And he says, they did. And they got married. What? He said, I, he's like, that crazy person is, is, is going to be your husband, I think. And they, you know, so she said, why am I stuck here? Why am I stuck underneath? And he's like, because your shidduch was under the bus. You have to find your shidduch under the bus. I do not suggest trying this, to be quite honest. Wait, what did you When a man and a woman are alone together, we're not related to each other. And he's what? How she ended there, we know. How she ended yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> that's, not, that's not the issue. I don't know. Who is this? 
I don't know, I can send you, I have, the, I just got the clip this morning. People are like, oh, it's a clip. I was like, <clears throat> it's Hebrew. He's being in Hebrew with English subtitles. It's, it was so funny. It was so funny. It's and he, he looked like it was a real story. So I don't know what his name I, is. I believe in this story. In Israel, I believe. <laughs> right? In Israel, first of all, I totally believe that the driver, you know, I didn't realize it was somebody else. question. Right. Well, maybe at the same time they were both getting their their bags, and I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so so oh, how did we get? How long ago was this story? Oh, maybe he didn't want to. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, I'll look at. I'll send you the clip and see if it has any kind of timing on it. Enough that they are that the rabbi says at the end of the clip that they are happily married already. You know, maybe they have kids. I don't remember, but. uh, So how did I get here? Because besides, that was a funny story. because that's kind of what exile is. That's what exile is. We end up in a place, we end up in a city where we are the only Jews. We end up in a situation. We end up getting stuck in an airport. We end, wherever it is that we end up, and we can either say, I'm going to just sit here and wait until help comes, or else we could say to ourselves, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing here? What, what, what's going on here and what does Hashem want me to be doing here right now? Because if he didn't have something for me to do right here, right now, I would be here. Right? I told you guys a story about the, the shliach who wanted to get a minion for his, his son wanted. Right? If you don't know the story, ask me afterwards. His, son, his six-year-old son wanted to be able to roll the Torah after and he was someplace that didn't have a minion. So I heard that, Elisha already for sure heard the story from me. If you don't know the story, ask me afterwards. It's, it's a story worth hearing. What, what does Hashem want for me here right now? And I think perhaps the harder place to ask that question is when we're in a place like Yerushalayim. Like, I don't know. Like, he wants me to get ice cream. I, I don't know what he wants me to do here, but like, really that, that question is as valid here as it is, I don't even know how to pronounce your town. And it's not cuts town, whatever. It's, yeah, it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, wherever, it doesn't matter where we are. And, and the question is as valid, like I said, the question, we under, you know, it, you seen Tzama last night at the, at the Hakel, the question isn't only, maybe we weren't, I wasn't there, we were supposed to, uh, the question isn't only, can I thirst for Hashem when I have no water, but can I thirst for Hashem when I do have water? And that's the same thing. Can I look for what Hashem wants of me here now when I do have plenty and I do have opportunity, and still, if I'm here and it's here, there's something that I'm supposed to be doing. So that's, that's a little bit about the clay kets of clay zav, that they're going to get something. There's something in there that is important for their avodas Hashem, for their service of Hashem. Sorry, personally, and because they are the beginning, you know, nexus of the Jewish people, it's also uh, relevant for the Jewish people globally. And, and the, the, in, in Hasidus, it talks about the idea that when the Jewish people left Egypt, they had elevated, like, a, like there's... Let's try to do the, Let's try to do the math of this. Yeah. It's in Hebrew. It'll be even more fun. Oh, okay. Perfect. Can't wait. Okay. I'm so bad math. Kabbalah tells us that there were reish peiches sparks of holiness that fell into the world. I do not know what that looks like. Do not ask. Okay. Give me a number. Emily. Reish is two hundred. Okay. Lila. Pei is eight. Three. Is 30. 80. <laughs> Lila, what's pay? I can't see the letters. Like, reflecting 80. <laughs> okay. Give me. I am not a good person for this. Eight. 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 Okay. Okay. So this means 288. No way. 
Sparks. When the Jews leave Egypt, that was, I, I, that was easy math for me, right? Okay, when they left, it says, they take redu with them. So, Rach, we know already is 200. A Dalid, four. Four. A Vav is? Six. So how many sparks is that? 210. These are already taken care of in Egypt. When they leave Egypt and they empty Egypt and they take all the gold and silver, they're taking out 210 sparks. Okay? Now clearly these are super powerful souls that we're talking about because in all of history, we're still working on 78 sparks. That's Since crazy. Egypt. Since world. Egypt. Yeah. This is like a global thing. Now, it's hard to envision because they don't really know what a spark looks like, but we know like it's going to separate and separate and separate and separate. Like, so it's not, if they were big souls and they were able to take a complete spark, or most of a complete spark, we're getting like Flintstone, like, <laughs> you know, like that little, you know, like spark like that, you know, we're not getting like the whole thing. So we've been, we've been working on the last 78 for like, since we left Egypt, we left Egypt in the year 2448 in the Jewish calendar. We're 5783. Somebody else do the math on that. I don't know. But we've been working on it for a very long time. Has anyone, like any speaker, said that like we've collected some of these yes. 78? Yes. The Rebbe spoke about it in, in the 80s that we have done everything that we have to do. We've collected everything. We've, we have to pop. All we have to do is... He says, like, when a general go, when they inspect the troops, they just have to polish the buttons, like, make sure everybody looks great, and all we have to do is polish the buttons, and a few years later, he's like, if we polish the buttons anymore, we're going to rub them out, <laughs> to paraphrase. But, like, there, there's a certain question, like, what, what else do you want us to do? Um, there was spoke about it many, many times, different things of what he felt was still missing, and one of the, I think one of the most painful things to hear at Fabringen was the Rebbe saying that if, if 10 Jews, if I think Goldie was talking about also, if 10 Jews wanted with a real, with, for real, wanted Mashiach for real, it would be here. And we're like, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what else you want. I don't know what you want from us. So I, I don't have the ultimate answer. I know that we are, contrary to what I said before, we really are on the cusp of, of Gula. We are on the cusp of Revelation. Um, not only because it's this week's parsh, not only because it's what? Not only. What? So it's not just because, not just because, yeah. you know, we're in the parsha and the parsha talking geula because we've read this parsha before, but there's there's a feeling cosmically that like, gotta gotta have something, like gotta do something because or else it's. What else could we do? And we we're doing our best and we're trying our best and we're joining in and doing mitzvahs and all that. So I'm not here to be a Debbie Downer. I'm here to, to say, like, I don't know what it is, but I feel like every time we do something, and maybe it's a question of intention, or like, do we have focus that this is my focus? I would like this to be to help in the bringing of Mashiach, not just to make me a better person and not just to make me a nicer person, but I want to do something to sort of help Mashiach come closer to let him know he's welcome and he's wanted here and we're ready as much as we're ever going to get ready, you know, like, let's do it, like, let's do it already. Um, so I don't know what it's going to take, but we know that the Jewish people, when they leave Egypt, they, they did an incredible, incredible amount of, of bringing Hashem into the world. And so when we talk about, just back to our conversation for a second, when we talk about the idea of taking stuff, they're not just taking stuff, they're actually bringing holiness back to Hashem parenthetical, 
just like the sort of tangential to that, one of the things that it talks about in Kabbalah is that Yosef, and what does the name Yosef mean? To gather, right? To gather or to add. Yosef, when he was the ruler of Egypt, and there was famine, and he, was, he, he gathered the wealth from all of the world to Egypt. Everybody who had famine was coming, and, and, the, and the Pusik talks about how Yosef sort of, he, 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 he sustained everybody. And the Mepharshim talk about that it was, the, the famine was like in the whole Fertile Crescent. So essentially, what Yosef does is the precursor for what the Jews need to do. He's going to gather all the resources, not just their physical resources, but their spiritual resources that have somehow been in their possessions, mm-hmm. gathered all to Egypt, and when the Jews are going to leave Egypt, they're not only taking Egypt sparks, they're taking everything from the Fertile Crescent area out with them. I mean, Yosef did that first gather, and the Jewish people, when they leave, end up taking all of that. So in Kabbalah, in Kabbalah and Hasidus, it talks about that a lot, um, that, that why were they able to do such a, a tremendous job? Because Yosef had started the gather before. We are up to Ravi. Ladies, we're... <laughs> yes. I heard it said that we shouldn't visit Mitzrayim, Egypt. It's a, it's, a, it's a biblical prohibition to go live in Egypt. To live in Egypt. And I've heard it connected to the sparks, that all the sparks are gone, and so we shouldn't go back. So the only reason we go any place, besides to go on vacation, is because ultimately, as a Jew, we go because I have something to do for Hashem. And so the t- there's actually a biblical prohibition against going back to Egypt. Even which, visiting for like a vacation? It talks about... You, there's a prohibition to go live in Egypt. So then we could raise a question. Maimonides lived in Egypt. Like, there were Jewish communities in Egypt. Like, how did that whole thing work? I'm not here to debate what they did or didn't do. I don't know. And I would imagine that Maimonides knew what he was doing. And he did knew. they ever have a house in... Uh, no. Egypt? No. The weirdest thing I actually heard one of our students was talking about going to Egypt for Pesach. What? And I was like... And I was like... I was like... I was like... But it was just like I, I didn't. I think I saw. I once saw advertised a Pesach program in Egypt. I for sure saw it advertised. But it just that's like you know, no, that sounds terrible. I like yeah, lost it. Not even lost in translation. I'm like yeah. Anyway, um, let's go to the Red Sea. Okay, yalla. Okay, so we got. We got to. We finished Shlishi. We're up to review. So we're at chapter eleven, verse four. If anybody's following along with us. So Moshe is now going to tell Pharaoh, and again, we said that he had the revelation in the palace. He's going to go to Pharaoh, and he's going to say, about midnight, I will come through the city, and I, all firstborns are going to die. We know this was the first, this was sort of the end game that when Moshe met Hashem at the burning bush, like this was sort of the end game that was given in there. And he, he talks about there's going to be this great, this, this great cry going on. And, um, and it says, and it's an interesting thing, if you take a look in verse, chapter 11, verse 7, and it says, and to the Jewish people, lo kelev l'shono, no dog will bark. And that somehow is like high up on the miracles of what's going on. Um, and, and, he, and Moshe says to Pharaoh that all of your nations, Oh, not all your nations. All your servants are going to come find us, and you're going to try to chase us out. And Rashi says it really was all. He was talking that Pharaoh was going to come looking for them, but he didn't want to be disrespectful to the king. It must. The whole dynamic must be very weird, because Moshe was raised in Pharaoh's palace, so it's not just like Pharaoh the oppressor, but this is like Pharaoh my 
right? <laughs> like it's kind of like a, and it's interesting that it talks about after after he tell after um, before before Choshech, it says that Moshe left with like sort of upset, and and one of the I forgot who says I I think the Mega Joseph says that one of the reasons that he was upset was because even though Hashem had told him that Pharaoh was not going to was not going to repent and not going to let them out. But there was this place that he felt like, as his step-grandpa, could he push through and still do tshuva? And when he didn't, like, that was so disappointing to him. Like, even, and, because, and we know that, 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 that Torah talks about there's, there's certain situations where a person is not given the opportunity to do tshuva, right? We know, like, somebody who says, I'm going to sin and then I'm going to do tshuva. So Torah's like, you're not going to have that opportunity. And Hasidah says, you're not going to be given help to do tshuva. But if you push through, even such a person would be able to do tshuva. So Moshe has hope that even though Pharaoh is having his heart hardened by Hashem, but maybe he'll still push through and want to do tshuva. And when that really doesn't happen, it's kind of disappointing on a certain level to Moshe as well. Because there's got to be that, that, that thing going on. Okay? I have a quick question. As many, yeah. The, um, hardening Pharaoh's heart. Is that... Like that's Hashem, like not giving Pharaoh the opportunity to like do. Shiva. So up until uh, up until uh, plague five, the verses in the pasuk support that Pharaoh was doing it himself, that he was being stubborn, that he was hardening his heart, and from six and on, yeah. Hashem saying, "I'm taking away your choice," and then then you raise all those ethical questions: How can you punish somebody for something that they don't have choice for? And, and, and then that would lead into the Hasidists that the plagues can't only be punishment because you can't punish somebody for something they didn't have. They had their, their choice was taken away to make the right choice. Their free will is taken away. So then I can't punish you for not doing it because I'm not letting you do it. But if the plagues are educational, okay. and then like at a certain point, Hashem's like, this lesson is going to continue whether you want to be part of it or not. And because up until now, your choice has shown that you don't want to be part of it, then, you know. Oh, there was one more thing I wanted to say about, we're going to back up a second. Um, back to Choshech, back to darkness for a second, because I think it's very important. Um, sorry if I'm out of order, but I, it just, I reminded myself. Um, one of the things that Rashi says of why we had darkness was because there were Jews who did not want to leave Egypt. And they died in the plague of darkness. And according to one commentary, four-fifths of the Jewish people did not leave Egypt. They died? And they died. Rashi says says that they died in the the plague of darkness. And then they... uh, that's what Rashi says. And that Hashem wanted it to happen under darkness so nobody should say, oh, the Jews are also getting punished. Um, I have a question I don't have an answer to. When the lights go on and four-fifths of the people are missing, you think they're not going to notice? I have not seen a satisfactory answer for it. Somebody must have it. I have, I have to give you know, answers that you've seen? I haven't even seen anybody oh. asking the question. I asked them, like, Ooh. <laughs> so what? So it's interesting. One thing that I saw, and one one commentary that I saw, so I did see one thing, was that they didn't actually they didn't die. They stayed in Egypt and they became so assimilated into Egyptian culture. It was as if they died. 
right? They like lost the spark. They, their their journey from Egypt is going to Sinai, mm-hmm. and over there they're going to go into they're going to enter covenant with Hashem. Yeah, and then it's going to be like your mind forever. Till now, the Jews have the ability to opt out. So the one commentary that I saw that doesn't make me so happy is that, especially because like the way the Rebbe treated Rashi as like so. Rashi says that they died, so I don't, I don't know how that... So you could say, okay, they stayed in Egypt and they therefore were dead to the Jewish people. That's, but I'm going to look into it a little bit more and see if I come up with something else. Um, but it's very interesting because we know that the Medrash tells us that when the Jewish people crossed the sea, which is next week's part, so I'm really... There were Jews who had idols in their pockets. Little idols in their pockets as they crossed the Red Sea. Now, the Jewish people are not at like the superest spiritual level. We know this about, about Egypt, that they're at the 49th level of impurity. and da, da, da. But the fact that you have... So then you say to yourself, Vega, you killed out four-fifths of the people in, pl- in the plague of darkness, but the guy with the, po- with the idols in his pocket got to go? Like, what's the logic of that? Like... The sinners get to go, and the people... So, <laughs> what's going on? And one of the things that Hasidus explains is there's a very, very, very big difference between somebody who is sinning and somebody who is emotionally opting out. And it says that the, Rashi brings the expression, there were people who did not want to leave. And if you did not want to leave, don't go. We're not going to schlep you out. But you could, you could have left Egypt, and we had many people who left Egypt, and they weren't still, they still weren't like great tzaddikim. It wasn't like everybody who left Egypt was like this amazing tzaddik, and they were so special. No, no, we know, the Medrash talks about when the Jews come to the sea, and they want, and they're like, Moshe's like, sea split, and, Mo, and the sea's like, I'm not splitting for these people. And they're like, but there was a condition, you have to split for these people. And he's like, that's not what I saw. When, that, when Hashem said, split for these souls, I saw beautiful, bright, shining souls. And now you're showing me people who are almost indistinguishable from the Egyptians. Why should I split? And it became a whole situation. We'll talk about it next week. But I'm saying the, the place of Egypt allowed somebody who didn't want to opt out. And one of the things that the Rebbe speaks about often, or he spoke about often, was this idea that after Sinai, after we had a covenant with Hashem, there's no longer the ability for us to say, eh, not interested. Like when the final Gula comes, and I think this is in the context that I heard it from the Rebbe so often, everybody's going out. Everybody's going out of Egypt. It doesn't matter how you feel about the situation. It doesn't matter what you really want to do. It doesn't, all of those things are not relevant. In Egypt, you, would, you, know, you could have opted out. You could have stayed in Egypt and said, things are pretty sweet here. We're like, you know, we're not, we're not enslaved anymore. They have good food. They have nice architecture. I'm going to stay here. And, and the rest of us will, you know, and everybody who wants to go, you go serve God in the desert where there's no Amazon and there's no, you know, there's no Trader Joe's. There's nothing there in the desert. Just go. Yalla. You do that. We'll stay here. We'll stay here in Egypt. And, and the Rebbe says that post-Sinai, that's not an option anymore. Post-Sinai, everybody's going to be redeemed. It doesn't matter what you thought or what you felt beforehand. You don't get to opt out of, of, our, of our Jewish people-ness. Okay. Um, okay, now, parakeet bays. 
If anybody remembers, if anybody has a full Chumash, does anybody remember what the first Chumash in Rashi is? The first, sorry, did I say Chumash Rashi? The first Rashi in the Chumash. Thank you, Shula, for actually paying attention to what I'm saying. Oh. What is the first Rashi in the Chumash? Why Bereshis and why didn't, why, why it's not Mitzvah for Kedushat HaKodesh? Do-do-do-do-do-do, Parakid Beis. This is what Rashi's talking about. Everything we had, all of Chumash Bereshis and the first 11 chapters of Shemos are all, according to Rashi, sort of extra we should have started the Torah from right here, from chapter 12, when Hashem says to Moshe, in the land of Mitzrayim, he gives us the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh, he gives us the mitzvah of sanctifying the moon, he gives us all that, that stuff is happening. And Rashi says, in the first, literally, thank you, Joel, the first Rashi in the entire Chomish says that the Torah should not have started at Bereshis, gives reasons why it does, it says, really, it should have started over here, by HaChodesh HaZelachem. So here we are, this is almost a start to the Torah, Right? It is not because there are many reasons why we start with our history to understand where we are and who we are and what our mission in life is. It's not just, oh, let's suck them in with stories and then smack them with some laws afterwards once they're like invested and they don't even realize we're like smuggling in these laws. That's not what's going on over here. Um, it's really to show us who we are and where we are and where we're coming from. But here we have this is actually the first mitzvah that Hashem is going to give the Jewish people. Um, and it's going to be the conversation of time and our relationship to time. And there's a very interesting thing when I was preparing that I learned because we know that in, in the times of the, of the temple, the, Jew, the calendar was set by, by witnesses, right? Um, and witnesses would come and say, we saw the moon, and then they would establish when the next holidays were. So in the middle, in, towards the end of the second temple period, we now have a perpetual calendar, so we don't have that anymore. But in the times when they were setting the calendar by visual uh, I was going to say visual aids, but it's not aids. By, by witnesses, the basin could make a calculation that says if we see, if witnesses proclaim Rosh Chodesh today, Pesach is going to fall out on whatever day of the week. It's not convenient for us. We're not seeing anybody today. We're not seeing witnesses. We're not closed for business today. We'll pick it up again tomorrow, right? And it's not, it's not, um, it's not, it's not, it's totally fine within the, the place of of, of creating holy time, of creating space, of saying, how does it work and how do we do it? Um, so we have within our, within our relationship with time, we have different types of things, right? We have Shabbos, which comes every seven days, ready or not, here we come, right? And it's, I feel some weeks that it comes very quickly. <laughs> like we just finished putting away the, the, you know, the dishes from Shabbos and it's Shabbos again. So Shabbos comes every single week. It's set, we don't create the holiness of Shabbos. Hashem created the holiness of Shabbos. But the holiness of holidays and the holiness of the months, that is something that we, in fact, do create. It is, it is a, it is a, it's a, I was going to say a man-made construct, but it isn't, that doesn't sound right. But it's definitely something controlled by, by us, by humanity, um, by the Basin. It, it's interesting, there was a conversation, if it's only the Basin in Yerushalayim, or it could also be, uh, any place in Israel, um, there's a, there's a like a side historical note that in the times of of Rabbi Yosef Karo, which is like the 1600s in Sfas, the majority of the Jewish great leaders were in Sfas and they wanted to reestablish smicha, and they tried to do it, and then from Jerusalem came the boy, came the opinion can't be coming out of Sfas, it has to come out of Jerusalem. And since Jerusalem didn't have those people. It was, it was disbanded. So we have this place of, of connection of time. I mentioned 
um, last, when we had a class, um, I mentioned about the, my, my place of, of our, our interesting connection to time. Um, and really, really, really what we are being asked every single day of our lives as we step into any time, because we know from Tanya, we talk about that, that the world was created, is created anew constantly. Creation is a constant ongoing process. We can never say to ourselves, and this is back to our, how do we, how do, how do, we do redemption in, in Parsha's both? We can never say to ourselves, I'm stuck in this place. This is my habit. I've always done it this way. This is because every single second, I don't even know how the time works. The world is being recreated. And what happened before does not have to have any bearing on my life unless I choose to let it have bearing on my life. And so if we're saying, how do I break out of habits? How do I break out of patterns that are unhealthy or are no longer serving me as they once did, how do I break out of that when I remind myself that we control time? We control when we step into the space of time. And today, again, we're not, it's not a personal obligation. It's not like, oh, we all get to make our own calendar and I'll do it today and you'll do it tomorrow. No, no, it's, it's a uniform thing, we the Jewish people. But we are not bound just because we've always done this this way. It's brand new creation. I could change. I could step into a new space. I could choose to do things differently. I can choose to do things, do things higher. I could choose to say, that doesn't work for me anymore. And that is part of the koch that we have in order to make change. Because when we think we've always done it like this, how, you know, I can't envision it any other way. Well, maybe you could. And maybe we could say to ourselves, we're not stuck in that space. We've always, because we've always doesn't exist anymore. Now, parentheses, things that you have to deal with, you know, any serious issues, trauma, or they aren't just going to go away because you wish them away. So it helps us deal with them when we understand that time is being recreated, but it doesn't mean you don't have to see, ther- see your therapist anymore. Um, and now we're going to have the laws of, okay, so, uh, so we, the Torah doesn't give us all the laws of Rosh Chodesh, but we are, Moshe was given all the laws of Rosh Chodesh. Rashi talks about that. It was hard for him. He didn't understand. Hashem showed him what the moon should look like in its, its rebirth place. Um, parenthetical, there's actually a halachic uh, conversation about can we, can we um, use the numbers to refer to, Gregorian, to a Gregorian calendar? Like 1, 12, whatever. Can we do that? Because the only month that is considered the first month is Nisan. Um, so there's a back and forth conversation going on. One of the coolest things for me when I moved to Israel is that I realized, and I'm going to date myself, that you were able to write the Hebrew date on a check in Israel. Really? Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. Then my husband's like, nobody knows what it is. I'm like, but I don't want to use those. So there's, there's a back and forth. There's, uh, this, is, this is halacha. There's one consensus. So there are some people who will only ever write out the name of the month. They'll only ever write January. And there are some people who will, in fact, use because it because they're saying it has no religious significance. It's just contractual, and that's how it's done. And, you know, it's not. But it, it, it's an interesting thought just to have in the back of our heads. It, it, is, it is a conversation um, about how we, how we number our, our documents and stuff like that. Um, 
So on Rosh Chodesh, Moshe's going to tell the Jewish people that on the 10th of the month, you are going to take a lamb or a goat and take it into your house. And on the 14th, you are going to slaughter it. And when the Egyptians say to you, why do you have our God in your house, possibly tied to your bed? You will say, because we are going to slaughter it as a sacrifice for Hashem. And in Tehillim, it's actually, it actually uses the expression, that there was a plague against Egypt through their firstborns. And when the firstborns heard this conversation, that the Jewish people were going to have a Pesach sacrifice, they were going to slaughter the gods, and Hashem was going to come and kill all the firstborns, they were like, not funny anymore. We want out. And there was actually a civil war that broke out in Egypt of the firstborns against the rest of the country to get the Jewish people out because they were like, okay, we're all, you know, suffering and blah, 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 like sababa. But like once it's personal, uh, we, have, uh, we have the solution. Send them out. Come, just send them out. So to Hill, and Tehillim, David Mel talks about it. There was actually a civil war in Egypt where the firstborns were like, Look, if it's not fair. Um, 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 so the Jews are told on Rosh Chodesh that on the 10th they have, to take the, they have to take the goat or the lamb and slaughter on the 14th. An interesting just side. Moshe tells, Moshe tells Pharaoh, about midnight. When Hashem gave him the law, he says, at midnight, exactly. Chassid talks about the idea of how do you actually split time and when you split it, there's always one that's on one side and one that's on the other side. But um, in, like, as a psychological thing, they ask, Rashi says, why does Moshe say kachatzot? And, and Rashi brings, because the scoffers will say, if it's off, they're afraid that their clocks are going to be off, and they'll say, oh, it isn't really from God. <laughs> and the Hasidists are like, this is playing number 10. We've been dealing with this for a year. And we're still, there are still scoffers in the community who are going to say, nah, it wasn't Hashem. It just happened. It was a random coincidence. And in order to prevent that from happening, Moshe changes the language to sort of like build in some, some space on the side. I don't know, how, they, how did they tell time at night over there if they had no sundial? I, I, I don't know how they took, told time, but whatever it was, there was a fear that somebody was going to say, oh, it wasn't from Hashem because it wasn't exactly, he said it was going to be exactly at midnight and it was 11.59 and 30 seconds. You mean somebody from Jewish community or from Egyptians? From the Egyptians. Okay. From the Egyptians. One of the Egyptians are going to say, eh, coincidence. And, and some of the modern Mepharshim, they talk about it, they're like, that is the power of self-denial. Like, you could be in a situation, we will hold on to the thinnest thread to prevent us from having to change our ways or to accept responsibility for our behavior. They're 30 seconds off in either direction, and there's going to be somebody who's like, nah, it, it wasn't real. It doesn't affect me at all. It's, I don't have to change. I don't have to do anything. And when we talk about our, our personal liberation, I think that's a very important thing to think about. Like, how many times do we fool ourselves and say everybody else is crazy everybody else is off it's i i have no problem like every it's everybody else it's not and not take responsibility for the things that we actually need to change that's not being liberated that's being foolish that's being like an egyptian who at the 10th plague is still going to say 
such a random coincidence that that happened. I can't, I can't, unbelievable, so weird, right? And we, we are not so foolish. And we do see patterns in our life when we open our eyes to listen to them and to look at them. And we should be able to see, I keep dating the same bad personality in different bodies. What do I need to change? Where's my, where's, where, where do I shift? It's not only all about them. Maybe it's you know, maybe something about me that I need to work on. Um, and we have now here, we have the, the, we have the whole, we have the beginning of the laws of, of carbon Pesach, of the Pesach sacrifice. Some of them are only going to be relevant for Egypt, and some of them are going to be relevant for generations. Um, so the, the age, it has to be within its first year. That's going to be for, for always. The fact that you have to take it early is not going to be, that's only for Egypt. Um, it's interesting that a lot of the Farshim talk about the idea that essentially what happens in Egypt is that every single house becomes a temple, becomes a Beit HaMikdash. You know, we talk about the idea like, when we, we talk about building, the, the Shalot talks about that we, we have a temple within each of us and we have to like, Hashem is within each of us. But the, the, the way the, the Pesach sacrifice was offered mimicked service in the Beit HaMikdash. Yes and no. Some yes and some no. So, for example, putting the blood on the doorposts, we know that when you bring a sacrifice in the temple, you sprinkle part of the blood on the, on the altar. And the fact that every, they, every single house had to slaughter um, an animal personally in the temple. It was only done in the temple, but like there's this, all these, and everybody being together, and how, when you're allowed to eat it, and how you're allowed to eat it, all of that stuff was highlighting the fact that this space is our sacred space. And one of the things that was unique to the Pesach sacrifice in Egypt was that there was a commandment that they were not allowed to leave their house. Once we're, you know, everybody has to stay in the house. So Rashi brings out the idea that there's destruction going on because the first Pesach sacrifice was offered the same night that the firstborns were being killed. Hence the name Pesach, Passover. Hashem passed over the homes of the Jewish people as he was going around smiting the Egyptians, which is definitely not a word that we use in regular conversation. I've only ever heard smite in relation to, to, to smiting the Egyptians. I've never actually heard it in any other context. In any other context. But, so that's where the Passover comes from. So, the, there's this, so, the, so Rashi says there's like this balagan going on outside, stay in the house. It's like this is your forest field and that's, you know, stay here, don't go out, you know. Um, and, 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 and other like sort of other commentaries talk about the idea that we are highlighting the fact that this is our sacred space, that where's the place of protection in a balagan? It's going to be the house. If when It's going to be your own personal house. If in Parshas Noach we spoke about the ark being the sanctuary, here we're highlighting the fact that it's the Jewish home that is going to be the sanctuary for the family. And if it talks about that, if, that the whole animal has to be eaten that night, and if you aren't big enough then to combine people together, that that place of sanctuary, that place of holiness is, is the Jewish home. And we know that historically the most important thing for the Jewish people was not the shul, it was the home. And if the home stays a holy special place and a place of security for the people around it, a place of inclusiveness and the place like we welcome Whoever, you know, everybody has to be counted into, in, the, in the Passover sacrifice before, before it was slaughtered. This is where my, this is who comes under my, you know, 
This is who comes under my, my, my sphere of influence, all these people. It doesn't have to only be my biological people. It could be the friends and the people and the family by choice that we make on our own. And that's really very highlighting this. That didn't make sense. That was not a correct English sense, whatever. Highlighted the fact that the home is here in, in Mitzrayim was the sanctuary. It was the sanctuary. It was the Beit HaMikdash. Each and every family was able to affect what later on was only going to be able to be done in one place. And it's very interesting. We talk about Pesach sacrifice um, for, for, it's called a diris, for, for generations. Um, even at a time when there was no temple and there was, there was the, there was, I'm losing my sentence, my English sentence. You were allowed to build a private altar to bring certain sacrifices. The Pesach sacrifice was never allowed to be brought on a private, it was called a bama. You were not allowed to bring the Pesach sacrifice on a, on a personal bama. You were only allowed to ever offer it on what was more public. So whether it was in Shiloh or there was something more communal, it wasn't ever a private, it's not a totally private sacrifice, but it's not a totally public sacrifice because specific people have to be connected to it. And and other people, uh, but it, but it's not it's not my own. I can't do it in my backyard. I have to do it part of a community. Um, so I saw something really interesting in davening. Some of the parts that I often skip over in true confessions is the whole section of the sacrifices, mm-hmm. the whole part about the sacrifices and so huh? It's the carbonate. Carbonate. It's a, it's a carbonate. Okay, and. In the beginning, it talks about, in the carbonate, it talks about different sacrifices and where they were slaughtered and how you did them and blah, 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 blah. Because about the incense and everything. Blah, blah, blah. One second. Okay. Um, this is coaching. Okay, then it talks about where do we offer sacrifices? And here it talks about, it talks about, the last one that brings is the Bukhar, is on this, in the blue series on page 24. The Bukhar, HaMaiser Pesach. So we have the firstborn animal, the tithing of your animals, which is the tenth of your new, of your new animals that were brought, and the Pesach, Kadshim Kalim, Kadshim Kalim. They are lesser holy, lesser sanctity, sacrifices of lesser sanctity. You can slaughter them here and there. This is what we do a thing. And then it says, but they're different in how they get eaten. So a bachar is eaten by, by the, it's only eaten by kohanim. The miser can be eaten by anybody. And then how they're prepared. And then it says the Passover offering, however, was to be eaten on that night only. The, oh, the other sacrifices, you got two days and a night to eat it. So the day you brought it, the night in the middle, and the next day, up until sundown, you could eat those sacrifices. Okay, then the Passover offering could be eaten only on that night, no later than midnight. It could not be eaten except by those who were registered for it, and it could not be eaten except when roasted. Now, every other sacrifice, you could the parts that you were allowed to eat, you could do whatever you wanted to it. To it, you could boil it. You could anybody who cooks knows there's. You could probably say ten different ways to cook food. The Pesach sacrifice, and he talks about it here. Thank you, Stella. Was only offered. Uh, was only cooked on a spit over fire. Okay, so here we talk about the idea that there's three sacrifices that share a commonality, and they they are also different. 
Okay, so what? So what do we know about, what do we know about the firstborn? Um, we, have, we have two animals that have a number. The firstborn is the first, and the, the tithing animal, the animals that we use for tithing, is always a tenth. You pen all the, all the new animals, and you let them out, and you mark every tenth, and all those tens, all those tens are the tithe, tithe, okay? So we have one and a ten. So if I was going to tell you one and a ten, our first animal is, our firstborn animal is, it's actually it is an eleventh, it goes from Chachma, Chachma, and our tenth animal is Malchus. So all of those sacrifices, whether you talk about the firstborn or the mice or the tithing, atmos- <laughs> tithing animal, all represent life as we know it within the normal boundaries of how Hashem created the world. And they were all, and there was a certain relationship that we had with Hashem, like the normal relationship that we had with Hashem that encompassed two days and a night. We had a first temple period, we had a second temple period, those were both our days. In the middle, we had a short night, we had the Babylonian exile, and that was what our relationship Tashem was within a normal way of interacting and coming to Hashem and having revelation. It was spiritual, it was holy, but it was, in, it was within a normal boundary of, a, a normal Seder Hishtalshus. It's a certain normal way of Hashem behaving with the world. The Pesach sacrifice is only, only ever offered at night. And we are now in the longest night of our exile that we've, it's been going on for thousands of years. And one of the things that we learn about the Pesach sacrifice, and we talk about different ways of cooking, have to do with different ways that we relate to Hashem. So when you have something that's cooked with fire, that's that place of passion, of excitement. Something that's cooked in water is sort of like, you know, water's like a little bit more calm and content and settled. Like you have all, in the times of the two temples and in the time of the first, of the first exile, We had all of those ways of relating with Hashem. And then that was all taken away from us. And the only thing that's left for us now is to have a relationship with Hashem. Well, first of all, we could also, but the Pesach sacrifice is teaching us to have a relationship with Hashem that is direct fire. It's not in a container. It's not protected. It's not. It's when we are in the place of darkness, 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 and we say, Abishter, I want to have a relationship with you. It doesn't make any sense. I don't have any way to really actualize it in this normal way that you react to, you, you interact with the world. But somehow in me, there burns this fire that I want to be connected. And that's really symbolized by the Pesach sacrifice, that there is this place where we, there's this direct fire, it's this direct connection where we say, it doesn't matter that it's so long and it's so dark and I haven't seen it and I don't know how to practice, can't go to the temple and I can't do this and I don't always see Hashem working in my life, but I want to have a relationship with you and that's very, very much what the Pesach sacrifice offers us, that hope that in that place of darkness, and please God, we daven that it should end very, very soon. And then we'll learn a different lesson from the Pesach sacrifice because that's how it works. But for this, for right now, that we should in this place of maybe not seeing Hashem so revealed, of not being so connected, of us being able to say we still want to have a relationship with Hashem. Abishter, we still want to be together with you. We still want to have a relationship with you. We still feel that it's important and missing in our life, even if we have to 
jump over normal things to have that relationship. I think everybody sitting around this table is kind of proof of jumping over normal things to have that relationship with Hashem. Um, and we still, there's some part of us that still says, I just need it. I just need it. There's nothing normal about it. There's nothing orderly about it. There's nothing. And yet I still believe that that's missing in my life and I want to put it in. So I want to give us a bracha that we tap into our Pesach sacrifice a little bit. That as we make our, you know, our exodus and we start to free ourselves from different things that are chaining us down and bothering us and holding us and all that kind of stuff, that we understand that even if everybody around us says, are you crazy? What are you doing? What happened to your five-year plan? What happened to your, you know, what happened to your thing? Or like, I'm doing this, I'm feeding my soul, I'm feeding the part of me that has been crying out for, for connection to Hashem, and I'm going to, and that's where I'm going to take it for a little bit. It doesn't mean that we don't have to come back into the world, and, but that's for another time. For right now, that's not where we're focusing. Um, so that's, that's our pace of sacrifice. Uh, then in Hamish, we have more Pesach laws. Hamishi Moshe tells it to the elders to tell the Jewish people. Shishi, we have it actually going down. Oh, that's more laws. More laws over here. Talks about them bringing the, pack, the sacrifice. Next week, we're going to cross the sea. And it talks about over here. Here we have it. We have it. The Exodus. La, 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 la. You ready? We have the Jews actually going and actually people. Da, da. Chapter 12, verse 37. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 37. And the Jewish people. And the Jewish They left Ramesses. They went to Sukkot. 600,000 men. Besides not counting the, the infants, not counting the women, not counting the older people. The younger people, and then we have some Eirav, this mixed multitude that go with them, and lots of stuff, and sheep, and animals, and blah, blah, blah. And here we have our conversation about baking the matzahs on their back, because they didn't have time to bake it. So we're having this whole, rush, 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 go, 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 go. <coughs> and they didn't want to have this chametz going on, and we have, and when we get closer to Pesach, we'll talk about all this conversation about matzah and the pre-midnight matzah and the post-midnight matzah, this whole stuff going on over there. But the people are going. They are leaving. And it tells us, the Pesach tells us that the Bnei Yisrael stayed in Egypt for th- 403 years. We know that the math doesn't actually work out like that. 403 years is from the birth of Isaac. Um, and they leave. Um, and they leave in the middle of the day so nobody should say that they were chased out and they left like, you know, whatever with their tail between their legs in the middle of the night. Um, and it's a night of guarding for us. Um, and we're out. And it should, and it should be, yes, amen, yay. And it should be like that. When we, we take the time and we set, the, we set what's going on, whether we talk about, we set our intention about we want, what we want to work out of not 10 things, one thing. One thing that we want to say, we can get out of it this week. We are going to go out with an outstretched hand. We are going to be able to do it in the most beautiful, glorious way possible. We can do it. Um, so I want to give us a bracha that we be honest and, and, and courageous to look and say, what do, I want to, what do I want to step out of today, this week? What do I want to use this energy or this parsha that's telling us, not only you can do it, but you did it. You did it. You're out. We left. We left. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be more journeys along the way and we're going to have to go from... This is the first thing. We live going from Ramses to Sukkot. 
It's going to take them longer to get to the land of Israel. It doesn't matter. That first breakout, we could do it. We did it. We did it already. And so I want to give us a bracha that we do it. That we break out, we break out, and we do it, and that's what we do. The end of the parsha has a bunch of different mitzvahs. We have the idea of the Jewish firstborns being sanctified. We, which kind of makes sense. We go, um, we have the, uh, we have the myth, more mitzvahs about Pesach. Um, we have it finishes often. I don't. I uh, talks about the firstborn of the of animals, and then at the end it talks about the mitzvah of tefillin. I, I don't know exactly how that works and how that you know binding and doing things together. So really, 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 I want to give us the biggest bracha that we we understand. Bo el paro, we are never alone in our in our journey and stepping out of what's holding us back down. Hashem is always there to help us, even if it seems like it's a little bit helpless, hopeless, maybe, I don't know. Um, Hashem's always with us. And this week, we're going to be able to say, we did it. We did it. We did it. We did it. Have an awesome rest of the day and a great job. Thank you.